It's my day off. You're welcome. Welcome to The Mocking Cast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries. I'm David Zoll, your host, and in just a few moments, I'll be joined by my co-hosts, Sarah Condon and RJ Heyman. We come to you every other Friday to explore a few of the places where we currently see grace and its absence playing out in unexpected and compelling ways. We're glad to have you with us. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. God. It's a beautiful day in the neighborhood. How are the two of you doing? Back at it after uh, our second time after our summer layoff. What's going on? Oh, you know, just working a new job. Any stories to share? Any stories to share, Sarah? I mean, I'll just say that our first Sunday dinner, uh, I cleaned up and thought that I was going to leave this church kitchen super clean as I had promised all the church staff was like, yeah, real... you won't woke, even know I was there. Real woke white lady about it. You know, like, you won't, you don't want, you know, like, we're going to keep a clean kitchen, this whole thing. And then uh, put all of this ground uh, meat down the disposal, and it all came out the bottom. And <laughs> I made a meat water floor in their kitchen and then left it because I actually couldn't find a janitor bucket and would know how to work it if I did. Also, I don't call Hans. So I'm basically doing the Lord's work right now, you guys. <laughs> <laughs> welcome Good. welcome to your new job, my dear. <laughs> welcome. The oh. staff was so sweet about it, and I felt like such an asshat. So anyway, I'm kick, kicking it off. I mean, it's just like the gospel. So, mm. yeah. Boom. How are you? RJ? RJ? Uh, I don't, it's been kind of a rough week, to be totally honest. First of all, Houston traffic, first week of school, it took me 40 minutes to get my son three miles, and it's like three days in a row, and he's been late every day, and I'm just like, oh my gosh. Uh, and then our two-year-old is in full two-year-old mode, screaming, hitting, throwing things, which is awesome. So I'm a little, I'm a little worn out. I'm a little worn out. I'm looking forward to a long weekend, so that's good. Um, and plus, it just continues to be oppressively hot in Houston to the point you just don't even want to go outside or even think about it. Mm. So hashtag real talk. That's <laughs> that's right. But I'm glad to see your smiling faces through the oh miracle of the goodness. internet. Well, Dave, I'm back. How are Dave, you? how are you doing? Thank you for asking. As always, I'm just back from um, South Jersey, where I got yeah, yeah. to visit with friends of ours at Holy Trinity Winona. Um, big shout out to Ben and Ashley Madison. They had a really, really fun time there. It's like it's amazing. You can drive, you know, four hours from here in Virginia, and you're really in a, you know. A whole different world. A whole different world. I mean, it really feels like the North all of a sudden. And they like the way that they talk about Virginia, it's, it's as though I'm driving up from Alabama. Right. But um, you're like, hey, guys, it's not that far. Um, anyway, speaking of uh, meat water cocktails and uh, <laughs> RJ needing to maybe kick back this weekend, let's talk about White Claw. White Claw is hard, a type of hard seltzer. Now, this is, again... Uh, you don't uh, have to tell me what it is. Okay. okay, I don't have to tell you what it is. <laughs> I did not know what it is. And oh my God, you Sarah's don't know what White Claw right now. I I've never heard of White Claw. I'm so old. <laughs> White Claw I, 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 is yeah, hard seltzer, classy, everyone. like... 
Mm. White Claw is the, was the beverage of choice, just as CBD oil was the sort of, I guess, uh, uh, oil of essential oil of choice uh, this summer. White Claw was the beverage of choice, and there's a ton of memes that have come up about it. It's a type of hard seltzer. That's exactly what it sounds like. It's fizzy water in a can with a pinch of sugar, a dash of fruit flavor, and roughly the same amount of alcohol as a light beer. It's cold, drinkable, and doesn't taste like much. Now, Amanda Mull, uh, writing in The Atlantic, she's kind of quickly become one of our favorites here on the podcast. She wrote an um, article about the White Claw phenomenon, uh, and the title is White Claw is What Happens When Being Cool Becomes Exhausting. And this is what she says. She says there's a viral joke about the hard seltzer uh, White Claws, uh, and that's ain't no laws when you're drinking claws. And the phrase has been emblazoned on shirts, koozies, and flags since it emerged from YouTube it's the official a drink of Mockingbird. It's the, it's the antinomian alcohol. I mean, it beverage. kind of is. Look like, for it at our 2020 conferences. Um, and it's only the most, those are only the most popular in the litany of white claw centric memes that have popped up as claws themselves have made their way into the hands of beachgoers and cookout attendees across America. If all this enthusiasm for getting absolutely twisted on a light, lightly flavored, low alcohol grocery store beverage sounds sort of lame to you, you're not wrong, but you've missed the point. A major factor in hard seltzer's current popularity is what it's not it's not difficult or aspirational. Being a cool young drinker has had a lot of arbitrary rules in the past decade. For much of the 2010s, booze trends have centered around limited edition, high alcohol craft beers and booze heavy, professionally assembled cocktails. These trends have demanded that young people learn the ins and outs of booze culture, have a willingness to pursue the stores, bars and breweries that meet their very particular tastes and have the ability to spend some money on to try new things. To get the full experience, those drinks also have to be aesthetically pleasing, all the better to document on Instagram to show off your generationally and socioeconomically appropriate good taste. White Claw's appeal, meanwhile, is that it rejects standards. It neatly satisfies young consumers' desires for affordable, convenient, portable, low-calorie, healthy-seeming alcohol options. It's the perfect drink for people exhausted by rules. 20-somethings have lived much of their adult life under the aesthetic tyranny of Instagram-determined good taste. After craft cocktails, funky IPAs, and attempts to acquire an affinity for whiskey neat, maybe nothing tastes better than giving up. Pretty cool. I thought it was a great... I mean, I haven't... As a man who's not had a White Claw yet... Um, I do know this sort of, uh, uh, you know, the 1890s, everything is a craft. Like, you kind of get why the trends are sort of moving back. But I'd like to hear more from the two of you about, um, you know, exhaustion, alcohol. I just, I feel like I need to say alcohol is not healthy. Like, that's just like when we have like a thing about like, this is a healthier option. It's not healthy. Yeah, so I've had White Claw. We had some this summer. Honestly, it doesn't taste very good. I think her description of the taste is pretty, like, accurate. Mm. Um, but it is really easy. Like, because it kind of feels like a drink that's already made. And it doesn't taste good, but it doesn't taste bad. And so if you want something cold that's, like, not going to make you feel like... I mean, I, I sort of hate the whole whiskey thing just because I'm such a lightweight that like I'm giving away family secrets 15 minutes into the drink you know what I mean so like mm -hmm. this is like a nice way to like have a drink be social you don't need a drink you don't need a drink it's to true, give away I don't. family it's secrets true, I, don't. I just need coffee and then I'm like hey want to know everything but um <laughs> yeah I mean I, I I thought this was funny I 
do wonder about, yeah, I don't know. I'm in a weird place with alcohol right now, so I'm not sure I'm like the best person to talk about this. I, I do, these things, these kink things kind of freak me out a little bit, to be honest with you. It makes alcohol so easy um, that you kind of forget it's alcohol. So like initially when I was looking at the article and it's like no laws, I was like, I wonder if like, suburban moms are just like carrying this around like it's seltzer like I kind of wondered if that's what the article was going to be about because you they make it so unalcohol that you forget it's alcohol on some level I don't know part of the thing I, I I have to navigate is I feel like culturally we're in this moment where like you know and I live in suburbia where alcohol is just so free-flowing in a way that um I think is destructive and we're not really acknowledging it. So some, so these drinks, while I've had them socially and stuff, so I don't want to make anybody feel bad. Like, I think they, I, I think they're kind of dangerous. <laughs> I feel like such a mammal for saying that, but I kind of do. So I go back and forth on that. So yeah, I know what you yeah, mean. Yeah, yeah. Like alcohol does flow unbelievably freely. And yet apparently people who've like studied these things historically, like we drink a lot less than people used to. And yeah. even I remember well, so, someone saying yeah. that like when, you know, when John Calvin became whatever Lord Protector of Geneva, like part of his contract was I think like 500 barrels of wine a year for his personal use. <laughs> so, yeah. and, you know, and, Lu- and Luther used to give lectures with like steins of beer. And, and maybe that's because you couldn't drink right, water without, water. <laughs> yeah, without getting dysentery. Exactly. Yeah. But, um, but I know what you mean. I mean, alcohol is definitely a, is a, is a thing. Um, this article just made me feel old because I've never heard of, <laughs> of White Claw. Um, I did ask my wife because, like, sort of vodka soda, you know, like, you know, mainly soda water with, like, just a drop of vodka on top has been her drink of choice for about a decade now. So I was like, you know, we should have gotten on this trend sooner. But I asked right. her, and, and she's like, what is that? I told her, she's like, oh, that sounds like Zima. You know, is that like Zima kind of, or like, you know, or PBR or Bartles and James? Like, is this really that new of a thing? You know, just like budget looking, sweet tasting, low class alcoholic drinks, which will, you know, don't really taste like alcohol. But I mean, it doesn't seem like that, that new of a thing. But but you do, you do get the sort of like poking fun at the fact that everyone, the the, the continual cycle of trend and rebellion. Anti-trend. Anti-trend. And especially here where one of the um, ways in which authenticity was, I think, lauded as this great virtue for a long time was that, you know, uh, any, the only things that were worth drinking or eating were things that took extremely long to prepare were really intricate and utilized like really old world methods. And so all of a sudden people are just after something that's easy because life is tough and they're just exhausted by all that. And you're seeing it sort of with the, with the, uh, um, Last week in, in, uh, in the uh, weekender, I talk, there's an article about influencers, like people that you follow on Instagram to, to know what not to do. Like everything you, they is like hate watching almost. Like oh, yeah. if they like it, I will definitely not have it. Um, I'm also thinking the White Claw thing and the marketing around it reminded me of that um, picture someone sent me last week, sort of under the under the banner of seculosity of a of a Qualtrics conference. Like it looks like an Apple keynote or something, and some guys walk around the stage and says, "Turn customers into fanatics, products into obsessions, employees into ambassadors, and brands into religions." Products being obsessions, memification. I mean, I'm sure it's done great things for their stock. Um, 
I mean, White Claw better make their money now because six months from now, it'll be on super sale. It's going to be Kroger, Brown Claw you know? six months like, like, from now. Like LaCroix sales are down apparently 60% or something this year. Like, what? Then, oh, yeah. They're, they're, no one's buying LaCroix anymore. So like, it's, when Y'all something is this fattish. got to buy some LaCroix. I'm going to need that for my lifetime. Well, <laughs> Costco's version is like a lot of better. It's just as good and it's a lot cheaper, right? Yeah. Um, Costco's a sponsor, guys. So we have to say that. That's right. <laughs> um, well, on from, uh, you know, I guess recreational drinking into recreational sports we're talking about football this first yes, time sports. i don't know if we've ever talked about <laughs> sports uh for in a serious way on this uh podcast but here we go because so many people sent this along the story of andrew luck who is the uh quarterback for the indianapolis colts who decided to retire from f- football uh, and walk away from a $60 million contract uh, just uh, before turning 30 years old. And uh, in the Washington Post, John Feinstein wrote that in 40 years as a reporter, uh, he says, I can't begin to count the number of athletes I've asked what they plan on doing when their playing days are over. Most of the time, the answers are remarkably similar. Coach, get a job in TV or radio, or become a scout. Um When I asked Luck the routine question in 2018, he smiled almost sheepishly, said, honestly, I think I could be very happy teaching high school history. That is an answer I've never gotten uh, before or since. Uh, Luck says, I love being a football player, uh, but it isn't my identity and never has been. It's no uh, mere coincidence that no active NFL player has criticized or questioned his decision to step away. But of the crowd at uh, in Indianapolis booed him after the announcement was made. Uh, Feinstein wrote that those who booed Luck on Saturday cannot understand how painful it is to play football, physically painful. Because NFL players are paid so well, many fans feel like they're owed a willingness to sacrifice body and soul. But this leads into the real uh, article here about it called Football Doesn't Let You Leave by Nate Jackson on Deadspin. And he was, uh, used to play for the Broncos. This is what he says. He says, when you make it to the NFL, people tell you that you're living the dream. They tell you how lucky you are. They tell you it's a good thing you don't have to get a real job like they had to because their lives suck and yours is awesome. When people constantly tell you how great you have it, it's hard to do anything but nod and agree, even when you feel something else entirely. What had I done wrong? Because if I was so unhappy while living the dream, I must have done something wrong, right? Once I put on the pads, Nate writes, like all football players, I became a prisoner of my success, a slave to my toughness. I wore that badge with pride and had no qualms about where it was taking me. But then my body started to fail me, injury after injury, disappointment after disappointment. No matter how rough things got, though, I always worked my way back, never wanting an injury to define me, never wanting weakness to be my final act. That's the pact you make when you put on that helmet. That's what Grandpa expected. That's what Dad expects and what all of your coaches and friends and neighbor expect. That kid who told you you'd never make it, that coach who cut you in college, the reporter who said you weren't worth the damn. You'll show them all. You'll have the last laugh. Football season. So I thought of Chad Bird. Uh, actually, the moment I heard the story, uh, you know, Chad's a, a guy we love. He's a, a theologian and pastor and uh, once professor uh, in the Lutheran tradition who had an affair. Frankly, he wrote about it. I'm not giving away his business. And um, everything shifted in his life very dramatically. And um, he writes incredible theology now and is a pastor to so many people. But his like work is that he drives an 18-wheeler. 
And, you know, we had the opportunity to spend some time with him. Uh, my family did. And it was like, it was such a weird moment of relief for my husband and I to know that like, I say this carefully, I mean, we love our work, but you can be so bound up in the identity of being a priest, being a pastor, being clergy, that you forget that that's not actually like who you are at the end of the day. And I think people, I mean, I hate to compare like clergy to football players because like, you know, obviously that's how much I know about football, but um but I think in the same way that there's this like sense that you can't leave this job, that this is some sort of, you know, if you're good at like God's called you to this and that kind of, it has a similar weightiness to it. And that you that's, take a lot of hits. And you, you take, take a lot of, of, it's a brutal job, a lot of you know, and pe- people don't see that part of it actually. And, and I think while we do see it on the football field, we don't necessarily, and you know, we're just now sort of realizing the, f- the physical nature of football and, and having to own how hard it is on these guys. But um, I think knowing who you belong to is so important in jobs like this. And I think sometimes knowing who you belong to means saying, you know, I'm going to step away from this thing that everyone thinks is my identity. Um, I just think he's like super brave. And um, yeah, I mean, and the fact that he wants to be a high school teacher or history teacher, this is like a thing he's talked about before is, is, is incredible because it's, it's headed in a completely different direction. I don't know. What do you think, RJ? You're the football guy, right? Totally. Um, I'll say first first off, I've pretty much always hated Andrew Luck because mm-hmm. he went to yeah. I'm he here for this. <laughs> yeah, he went to Stanford. I went to Berkeley, which is our rival, oh, and then yes. he was he was drafted number one by the Colts, and number two was uh, Robert Griffin the third, who played for the Redskins, which is my team, and mm. they were always com- compared to one another, and everyone said Luck was better, even though RG three won Rookie of the Year that year. Mm. Um, so I've never really liked him, but now I love him. I, I, mm. I have such a soft spot for him. And there was so much about this whole episode and that Nate Jackson article, especially, which set off alarm bells in my head. And the first thing was, I, I listen to like economics podcasts sometimes. There's this thing called the sunk cost fallacy, where when you put so many years into a certain endeavor, like you can't leave it behind, like you have to see it through. Um, and I think about that with Andrew Luck, like the amount of, that he's probably dedicated 75, 80% of his life to this thing. And it's been everything for him. And he's put so much time and effort and rehab and, and, and everything. And, um, it's really hard to walk away. Um, and I, I don't know, I thought about the apostle Paul, you know, when he got knocked off his horse, if he thought to himself, well, I'd really like to follow this Jesus guy, but man, I've put a lot of years in you know, blood, sweat, and effort in this whole Jewish thing. Maybe I should just stay the course. Um, I but got for him, circumcised. Th- yeah. <laughs> I got some skin in the game, if you know what I mean. Um, you know, Dave and I, as we've said, worked in youth ministry for a long time, and uh, we would do summer camps for high schoolers and middle schoolers, and we would have college uh, and young adult leaders give testimonies about their Christian faith or their, their conversion to um, these younger students. And I was sort of coordinating those um testimonies this one week and there was a young lady and her testimony was that um she'd been really big into horseback riding have i told this story before about horseback so. riding okay really big into horseback riding and then she had come to know jesus and because of her faith in jesus she had like given up her horseback riding you know sort of typical i mean you know some of people are like i gave up drugs and alcohol for her it was like i gave up horseback riding 
And I sort of thought, it didn't feel quite right to me. And I said, is that, is that really true? Is that really what happened? And she sort of took a deep breath and she said, well, not exactly. The truth is that um, I had been horseback riding at that point for like 10 or 12 years. And it was every weekend and every day. And I was really <laughs> sick of it. Mm. And I was looking for a way out. And coming to faith in Jesus and knowing that I was loved by him no matter what gave me the courage to step out of something that I no longer wanted to do. And I was like, that's the story you need to tell. That's the Andrew Luck story, right? Because I, I always looked at I think he does, I think he has a Catholic, like he has a Christian faith, you know? And I, I've got to think that in there somewhere, him knowing, like you said, Sarah, that his identity is not a football player, that he is loved, that he is a, by God, in spite of what he does, gave him the courage to step away in spite of the booze and the second guessing and sort of um, leaving it all behind and, and turning his back on decades of hard work and preparation. So, you know, I think there's something to be said for that, that, mm. um, you know, w what does Jesus say? The, the wind blows wherever it pleases, where it comes from, where it's going, nobody knows. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. And sometimes we are called or freed up to do things that don't make sense in the world's eyes and to leave things behind that we may have spent years and years and years of time and effort and money investing in. And, and maybe that's what we want to do, actually. And knowing that we're loved by Jesus um, gives us the freedom to, to do that. So I don't know, maybe there's someone out there who needs to Amen. leave something behind. Yeah, gosh, thank you, RJ. I, I feel like I need to leave something behind now. I feel like... <laughs> well, that was really for you, Sarah. I'm, glad you. I'm glad you got the video. We'll cut it. So yeah, just for me. <laughs> um, that was awesome, seriously. Thank you. You know, every as I've been going around talking about the Seculosity book, uh, people always... The question I get every single time is, what are the other areas of of like secular religiosity that you didn't write about or that you could have written about? And most people um, say sports, you know, is one that I could have, and I actually put it in a footnote that I could have, but I don't, I don't know enough about sports um, to have done it with any real humility. Um, I would have just sort of been sounded, I don't know, like a like, a, like, like me, like a record store clerk, right? Yeah. Talking about yeah. And um, then this past week, when we when I was in New Jersey, this one uh, clergy woman said, um, "I think I think actually sports is is one way of thinking about it. You can think about it in terms of fandom, because the same thing is um, uh, the fans who feel entitled to uh, you know his." blood, sweat, and tears, and in fact, his physical health. It's the same thing as when a director takes on like a Star Wars franchise, and the people, like he, they get death threats for doing things that they shouldn't do, and there's this over-identification, and you have rooted your story in the story that they're actually living or trying to tell, and uh, how just dangerous that is, and how it takes something that's really, you know, recreation or storytelling and it makes it into a total um, venue of righteousness and self-justification and enoughness and like even bloodletting. Mm -hmm. So that's one thing I thought about. Uh, and of course, then you have though, that's not to say that as an athlete, watching like my kids go through, you know, Little League and get it, it, it ramping up and the travel stuff. I mean, there is this enoughness. There is this sense of like, um, you know, next year I'll do better. Uh, and I kind of wrote about this in terms of swimming recently. I was a swimmer in high school and college, and uh, there was this, always this idea I was going to have my next season would be the best season. My times were always going to get lower. And then finally, you you realize that this is making you miserable, and your times are never going to get... It's sort of a lie. It's almost like a devilish type thing. Um, 
I mean, I'm sure there's some sense in which, oh, going out there, trying your hardest and improving is, 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 can be gratifying for a young person. But then, then there's this lie that it's almost like a, a tantalus thing where you're always thinking you're going you're gonna to finally get to that point where you can be satisfied and retire or stop. And every most athletes I know who've walked away, it's been because they've sort of come to this um, you know, crisis moment where they're like, wait a second, uh, that's never going to happen. And I'm, uh, it, you know, it, it's the Jerry Seinfeld thing. You know, the, the wisdom to know when to walk away is like, is unbelievably rare. And that courage, uh, but maybe because of sunk costs and things, I find it to be almost like a God-given thing that someone can 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 say, well, uh, I may not find my enoughness, my righteousness in this thing, but that doesn't mean it won't be given to me somewhere else or that uh, my enjoy, to focus on your enjoyment of the actual thing rather than what it's doing for your identity is extremely, it's easier to talk about than to actually execute. RJ, you're about to say something? I was going to the best book about exactly what you're talking about from an athlete's perspective is Open by Andre Agassi. Mm. Um, and I would, I would encourage actually you, Dave, to read that um, and anyone to read that because uh, his father was so oppressive and Agassi had such an awful relationship with tennis, which he was so good at and with himself. And if you know, anything about Agassi, he retired and came back about three different times, but it was part of his struggle between how do I, how, how can I learn to love this thing, which I'm so good at uh, mm. in spite of all the baggage that I'm bringing. So he would uh, retire or fall to like, you know, 500 of the world, then come back and be number one and retire again and come back. And it was, it's a, it was, it's a pretty amazing story. And that book I found to be incredibly um, insightful, actually. So what that's worth. I keep thinking actually about the documentary that's uh, out right now uh, about the amazing Jonathan. Did you guys remember him from like the 90s? No. He was a stand-up comedian magician, so obviously in my wheelhouse. And um, he was given a death sentence, basically, uh, medically, <laughs> uh, probably five or six years ago. Um, they told him he had a year to live because he had a heart condition. It's an incredible documentary because in some ways it's a documentary about making a documentary. Um, but he, at one point, has three or four different documentaries being made about him at once because he's so he's such a deeply damaged person that he kind of can't say no to the fame to the attention um and he decides with this horrible horrible illness he's also addicted to crystal meth like as this person who's dying. I mean, it's incredibly painful to watch, but he decides he he's, the problem is that he needs to go back to doing magic again. And so you actually watch him like get up on stage and do these tricks that are like the same stuff he did 20 years ago. Um, you know, he's like, it, it reminds me of Andre Agassi. Like he puts on a wig, like a toupee, yes. you know, it's the whole thing. And um, it's so brutal to watch. But I so recommend that our listeners watch it because I have never seen such a gorgeous portrait of Grace in a film. Mm. The way that it ends, we we finished it last night, is so arresting and jarring and full of mercy. Um, 
I, I can't, I, you know, I, I wouldn't want to spoil it for anybody. But anyway, I, I keep thinking about sort of the opposite of what this looks like, which is, right, that we continue to cling to this identity no matter what, and that we really allow it to destroy us. Or not, I hate to say even allow it, because I think people are so powerless yeah. um, over themselves. Uh, but I think it just destroys us ultimately. Well, so... You know. so we've talked about it, the three of us, but um, one of the big newsworthy things this week is the, frankly, Dave Chappelle's new comedy special. Oh <laughs> At co- quote unquote comedy, it's it's uh, it's abrasive. It's yeah, I, yeah, you I, will be offended no matter who. It's, yeah, it's, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. It's, I could I'm gonna use the word brilliant. I think it's um, that uh, in and not you know again as he says in the thing if you, you click on his face you know you sort of it's up to you to turn it off if you don't want to. <laughs> you knew what you're gonna however catch. he right. again because he touches on absolutely every single hot button issue in our culture with um a sort of an unexpected i don't think a predictable take at all but um He's Dave Chappelle, so you know what you're getting into. Uh, but he begins by talking. The begin he says, like the, mo- the his opening gambit is by saying, "I can't get o- I can't get over Anthony Bourdain uh, committing suicide because that guy had the greatest job that's ever been known to man." Uh, he would fly to incredibly cool places and eat incredibly good food with incredibly interesting people, and he then you know. Uh, kills himself in a five-star hotel somewhere. And Sarah, you had written very beautifully about that subject, and I don't want to reduce um, self-harm to uh, purely circumstantial things, but it is uh, it, it does stand up, in his, at least in the way he delivers it, as this incredible uh, you know, parable or illustration of um, that kind Suffering. of emptiness uh, that is yeah. cannot really be met with the world's. I mean, it's, it's almost cliched. It's so intense. And then he tells a story of his friend from who who grew up with nothing and went to uh, a uh, you know an Lost. Ivy League Lost. school so and married funny. this beautiful woman. And then somehow it all fell apart. And he runs into the guy in Foot Locker who's living with his mother at this point. And uh, and he's like, but and he's the manager at Foot Locker, he's, so he's in the ref outfit. So he's a black guy who's also grown up with nothing. But he's like, he's in the ref outfit, and he's like, and yet. It never occurred to him to like kill himself, <laughs> and it's. <laughs> I mean, it's this, anyway. People and you feel so terrible for laughing. I just want to say, if you're going to watch the bell, you're going to feel terrible for laughing the like, entire time. But it will like, operate upon you. Will you will be offended and feel ashamed <laughs> all at once. So enjoy. We highly recommend it. And talk about a guy who had to escape for a while under the weight of expectation, right? He went dark for what a decade. Yeah, and he, he would say he sort of died almost. I mean, it's like he's a and and there's a fearlessness about the man that is. Uh, um, yeah, he's been resurrected. Intimidated, but also uh, kind of uh, there's a, there's a whiff of freedom about it that's almost uh, intoxicating. He's and there's a moment of grace fearless. and practice, by the way, in the epilogue part of it. Going from something abrasive into something op- the opposite. There was an article on Christianity Today by Sharon Hod Miller called Why Niceness Weakens Our Witness. And um, she writes, Niceness is a form of superficial kindness that's used as a means to a selfish end. I identify it as an idol in my life because I have served it tirelessly and it has served me well in return. My devotion to it has won me a lot of acceptance and praise, but it has also inhibited my courage, fed my self-righteousness, encouraged my inauthenticity, and produced in me a flimsy sweetness that easily gives way to disdain. 
I see the same phenomenon everywhere. Niceness has become a social currency in our culture, one that we value highly without ever realizing it. We will forgive all manner of ills in a person we deem to be nice. We use niceness to grease the wheels of our social interactions. We employ it like a ladder, helping us to scale the heights of our career. Niceness is concerned with the appearance of goodness and not the reality of it. In addition to being a false virtue, niceness radically diminishes Christian witness. Author Randy Alcorn describes it this way, We've been schooled that it's inappropriate to say anything negative. Being a good witness once meant faithfully representing Christ, even when it meant being unpopular. Now it means making people like us. We've redefined Christ-like to mean nice. The solution, she writes, however, is not to trade in our appearance of niceness for an appearance of boldness. We have to go deeper into Christ. Jesus was loving. He was gracious. He was forgiving. He was kind, but he was not nice. He was a man who would leave the 99 sheep to rescue the one, but he was also totally unafraid of offending people. Lots to say about this, but I was very curious in what you, uh, RJ, I consider you to be a very nice person. Sarah, um, I have a, you have a lot of wonderful virtues. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I was like, is he going to lie? <laughs> Sarah, you are incredibly uh, uh, insightful. Honest. <laughs> No, where did you guys land on this? Because people, you know, there is something about does it the, the, the Flanders idea from The Simpsons that being sure. a Christian is sort of a wet noodle and just being super nice all the time, and yet who also is constantly vindicated in that show? Let it be said. Let it like, be said. You know, yeah. Let it be said. But um, niceness versus, uh, uh, you know, goodness. Uh, I don't know. Where Where do you guys? What do you think about this? I had a tough time with this article. But I, I did. I did. And I thought about it. I felt like it skewered me a little bit. Like, am I am I too nice? You know, do I care too much about what um, other people think about me? And I, but I then thought about sort of where that comes from. And I wasn't always nice. You know, we've talked before about my high school days when I, you know, um, I from time to time would wear a beret to school and often wore a three-inch wooden cross around my neck and would read the New York Times during lunch in the cafeteria and was happy to speak the truth in love to anyone who was willing to hear it. <laughs> um, no one. Right. Amazingly, it didn't work out that well. And I remember talking to a girl once who I kind of liked, um... I actually might have, she might have dated me if I had been nice to her, but I wasn't nice to her. But then she ended up being another guy who, like, I, I didn't think very highly of in my infinite wisdom. And at some point, she just said something like, he's just such a nice guy. He's such a nice guy. And I realized I was not a nice guy. But I kind of wanted to be a nice guy. And so in college, I decided to try being a nice guy. And guess what? It worked. You know? And there's something to be said for being nice, and I don't mean like saccharine, sweet, like rollover all the time, but maybe being nice creates, it does sort of create the space for love, and, and someone might actually tell you what's going on in their life, you know, they, if you're nice. Whereas if they think you're just going to speak the truth to them or judge them, or they're not going to tell you anything. And, and guess what? Like, I'm not Jesus. Like, I don't know what's going on with people. I can't see behind the mask. I, I, I have limited wisdom. And so I think there's something to be said for being nice in the name of knowing that Jesus isn't always nice. And I don't think you always need to be nice, like as a pre, you know, if as a pastor or whatever from the pulpit, 
you know, you can sort of speak some hard truths as long as it's kind of backed up by grace. And, and I, I have no problem offending with the gospel, you know, offend with nothing but the gospel, but I'd rather not just be me that's offending, you know, cause that doesn't really accomplish anything. Mm. So, um, I don't, I do, I don't know, man. I had a tough time with this article. I think, and I say this carefully to you, cause this is like a word that people, I don't know, uh, tend to feminize, but I don't actually think of you as nice. I think of you as gentle, oh. which is different. I like that. Um, and having worked with you before, I definitely would like, you know, like spitball stuff with you just because you would have this like very gentle response or you just laugh at me. And in either, <laughs> in either instance, it was like very helpful. Um, but I agree with you in that I, – I don't know. I do get a little anxious whenever people are like, this is what Jesus was, like, so we should be that. And I'm like, well, is there a cross out back you're going to crawl up on and we're all going to, like, <laughs> stand around it and watch what happens? Like, and spit, spit on you. How's the, how's the ending of this going for you? Um, yeah, so for me, because I'm not a nice person, um, I – and I can't like fake it. I mean, I just wasn't raised to be nice. Like I remember, and which is weird because 99% of the young women in Mississippi are definitely raised to be nice. But like we had this family friend and every time her daughter would like go anywhere as she's walking out, she'd be like this. Hold on. Let me just muster this. She'd go, be nice, Leanne. <laughs> <laughs> And like that's that's like that was like a thing that like my mom was like we're never gonna say that to you like it was like a very like w that's not what we do in this family, and so like yeah I'm not nice like that's never occurred to me to be nice. However, when I'm around people like RJ and Dave, you embody some of this, and and frankly, it's a thing. I've told Dave this, but it's a thing in Mockingbird that's really shaped me in a different way, where when people get upset by what I say or or who I am even, um, there's a way in Mockingbird I've just learned. And frankly, I think this like goes all the way to Paul's all where you're just kind of like, you the, the word is not relent, but the word is to be gentle in that moment. Like to not come back at somebody with like aggression but to come back at somebody in a really open-hearted way and say, I hear you and I'm with you and I get that this may not make sense for you and like, where are you with this? And, you know, it's, it's a, it, it, I think, and I think to say that that is being nice is to really minimize mm. what actually is in some ways, a, maybe in some ways a Christ-like posture, but I actually think just in, in more ways is like the posture of someone who follows Christ, mm. right? So yeah, yeah. I mean the, the 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 distinction that she's making a lot of times in here, I think, is between niceness and kindness. And I think that the mistake would be to say, well, kindness never looks like niceness, or niceness right. never looks like kindness, uh, or I mean, actually, more the former that that uh, kindness never looks like niceness because any opportunity I think people can find to justify their own controlling slightly assholeish tendencies and help other people what they really think of them or what they should do or judge them i mean and that's what you sort of if niceness is a buffer against sort of just being uh, a judgmental uh, so and so who then i think that 
I, I, I don't want to attack niceness because I think it's, you know, better. I'd rather be around people that are nice than people who are mean. Um, Sarah, I don't actually, by yeah, the way. There's no surplus of niceness in our culture. I mean, right? that's ne- Never do I like... think of you as a, as a, as a, as a mean person. So, um, well, uh, I am. I appreciate that. But, but I mean, the other thing it makes me think of is that gentleness, um, Maybe kindness, although I get it. that word's very hip right now. Like you can, you can't find a t-shirt for a kid that doesn't seem to have like be kind written on it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that maybe the other word I think of is like sacrificial, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Which is also kind of a posture I've learned from Mockingbird. But, um, you know, I had told you guys this, but our son, uh, broke his arm and so that means that he can't and he's a third grade boy he can't go outside on the playground <laughs> which is like brutal <laughs> for him um and he has this friend who has given up recess every single day since school started every single day and he sits with neil in the nurse's office because they were too loud for the library and they play board games together and mm. i for me, that is so far beyond nice. Mm-hmm. Like it's this kid is giving up to to be with my kid. And I think that's, you know, that's that's in it that's gentleness is like this word that we I think that we think of as gentle. And it's actually like a super powerful aggressive word in some ways, right? Because it it is gentleness is the feeling we get. I think it's the feeling I get when I know I should receive judgment and instead I get a hug. You know what I mean? Like it's that it's that kind of that contrast we get in scripture from Jesus that's just so jarring. It's like, you know, Neil broke his arm. He should like have, you know, he could should just sit there and like read by himself. Like that's what should happen. You know what I mean? Like that's the protocol. But like he's got this kid who's willing to like give up his recess and he's got this teacher who's willing to let these two like zoo animals hang out together in the nurse's office and like None of it is really, quote unquote, deserved, right? And that's why it's so incredible. I think sacrificial is a good word too, um, Sarah, because what I often see you do is um, say things that may not be popular but are true and kind of need to be said, and you're willing to take the hits mm. to say them, you know, which... which that's sacrificial. Yeah, you... It's sacrificial, yeah. And then also, I don't know, I wonder if that other or little boy... but yeah. That other little boy just likes your son and would rather be yes. playing board games with your son it's true, than though. outside I mean, getting hit in the head yes. with a kickball. Yeah, no, it's, <laughs> you know, it's or, totally or true. Or whatever it is. Like they sit in there yeah. and play bananagrams. They're like in nerdy boy heaven. It's my favorite. It's, uh, you know, yeah, there you go. There, there's definitely a trend in certain Christian circles to like laud all these virtues. And that becomes like, uh, you know, we cultivate virtue rather. That's sort of a euphemism for we follow all, it's, it's a, we follow all these laws. I mean, it becomes a, a, a new legalism, I think, uh, you know, as, 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 as much as it's got this incredible tradition of people talking about virtue and the cultivation of them, but uh, and niceness un- and kindness as well is almost always something I think we co- try to cultivate in ourselves, and therefore it can become be kind is an incredible uh, law. Uh, there's a there's a sign again in our. Um, in our uh, it, right near us, a huge sign that a church has erected, and it says, um, "Do no harm" in all caps, and then it says, uh, "Do good," uh, 
And then it says, love God. And I was like, okay, so don't do anything bad. Then, uh, no, no, sure. actually, do Never leave things that are good. Are you dead? And then it's like, actually, love God. And I, you just, you know, I was like, okay, well, there you go. That's that's the law. That's why I need to go into church, rather than not, not, not <laughs> that'll right. keep me away. But I was thinking about how Will McDavid wrote something about this a couple of years ago. And he said that in the Christian tradition, actually, there are three virtues that are that are sort of take pride of place among all others, and that's faith, hope, and love. And he says, he writes, they have an object, and perhaps they acquire uh, them from that object, meaning God, rather than from practice. All three, faith, hope, and love, look to God. Courage and temperance and even kindness stand on their own, but faith is always faith in. Hope is hope in. Love is love of. They take us outside ourselves, thank God. And what is their source? Faith is a natural response when someone proves herself trustworthy and reliable. Hope is hope in a reliable promise. And love both reaches out toward what is lovely and naturally reciprocates when someone first loves us. So we thank God that our faith, hope, and love, the actual virtues that really count, come not from ourselves, nor our disciplines, our practices, our actions, or habits, but they come from the one who elicits them. That real virtue is a uh, something that comes from God, and I think that. Um, the, 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 unfortunately, when we get into uh, even even talking about niceness versus kindness, as interesting as it is, it, it boils down to uh, okay, well, kindness is what we're after, so therefore, be kind. Damn it, you know it's. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I th- I have to say one more thing. I think as a mom, one thing I've learned, and there's some there's some really interesting psychological data that backs this up, is that we can't make our children kind. We can't make our children um, nice. What we can do that's very powerful, and I remember reading a lot about this around Harvey, is say to our children, because there's this idea we have that our kids will learn to be nice or kind because we tell them, but actually what has to happen is someone has to sort of give them those virtues. Like, in other words, like my son's friend has to say, hey, I'm going to give up recess and hang out with you every day. And then we have to say, this was like such a kind thing. He Like he just like, mm. did, what, what an amazing thing he did for you. And that's actually the only way. I mean, there's real data that backs this up that kids understand how to be kind as if you've said, oh my gosh, someone's given all this up for you. And then they're able to say, oh, I can do that. And it's such a reflection of the gospel. Like it's like so linked to what Jesus has done because it's like, if you tell me to be nice, I'm like, take a hike. You know what I mean? Like you be nice, Leanne. But like, if you tell me, right, that Jesus has, has gone all the way for me, has loved me regardless of how nice or not nice I am, that emits a very different feeling. I mean, that makes me want to meet people with gentleness and openness and sometimes sacrifice, right? Because it's just it's a it's just a completely different a completely different place to start. That reminds me, you know, you sent that viral uh, picture of yeah. the little boy in the first day of school holding his friend's hand who was overwhelmed because he's autistic, and it was beautiful. But I got to say, the interview that the news lady did with the two little boys um, made me a little uncomfortable. But as, you're, as you were talking, it was also very revealing because the little boy who received the kindness could not stop talking about it. Mm-hmm. The little boy who had um, enacted the kindness had, didn't know what to say about it. Yeah. He, he had nothing to say. He just did it. Yeah. You know, clearly because um, 
he had kind parents or he'd experienced some kindness. So there was, there was something, there was just a movement of the Holy spirit that said, I need to hold my friend's hand right now. Um, yeah. So it was, it was a little bit like, you know, Jesus, uh, do not let the, your right hand know what your left hand is doing. And yeah. this little boy just did it spontaneously and wonderfully. And I was like, news lady, why do you got to make him talk about it? Like, the Holy Ghost gonna ru- does not make for a good it. interview. <laughs> you're going to ruin it, you know? Like, man. Well, that sounds like a good enough place for us to end then. Wait, we should, we're going to ruin it. We're going to ruin it <laughs> by talking about it. Um, I, I'm grateful for you two. Thank you for being kind to me, to be honest. Uh, And we will talk to you in a couple weeks. Bye. Thank you for listening. Remember, you can find us on the web at www.mbird.com. And we'd always love to hear from you at info at mbird.com. Audio production for The Mockingcast is provided by the Narrativo Group. And if you like what you've heard, please do drop over to iTunes and leave us a rating and review. Until next time. Praise the Lord.